place I work at is over a hundred years old, and I think past tragedies have built into a full-fledged haunting. It was hot enough to burn, and the air wasn't moving at all, but a thundercloud was keeping the patio-shaded winter dark. On account of the strange feeling in the world, the customers out there weren't talking much. It was the kind of weather that my mom used to call ominous. She put up spare crosses to keep away bad spirits, and made me and my brother feel better. We didn't have any relics at Cooper's, though, because Cooper always said bargoers wouldn't like it. They didn't want to be reminded of religion while they were getting thrashed and trying to get some. It made sense, sure. I still washed and had some sort of comfort as I took my first day's roundabout through the building. Cooper's had been active in the 20s as a speakeasy, and had been expanded many times. Till now, it was a gigantic mess of a building. Their trip to the bathroom alone had newcomers confused. They'd go back from the bar area and find a little dining room, back some more, find a half-exposed patio, back past that, and there's narrow steps to a crappy basement drinking area. If they take a left past those stairs, they hit one of the building's exits. If they turn around, the bathroom doors are in the wall behind them, same color as the surrounding wood. They usually don't even know the doors are there unless someone else comes out. And that was just half the first floor. The place had two basement levels, four floors, and a small fenced area on the roof. It was a mansion of a bar, and Cooper treated it that way. He was there getting drunk and giving away free drinks every single night. It was his own personal party every day of the week. Us? We were just the buzzkills at his party. Nobody wants to think about paying the hell while the party's still on, but his party never ended, so he was always pissy and annoyed that he had to give money to the people in his mansion. There were random screaming fits and lots of excuses to dock pay, but that stuff was still better than my last job. No, the thing that got to me was his need to test us. He would leave some random mess somewhere in the mazy bar at the start of the day, and later he'd ask us if we did our roundabout right. We'd say, yes, of course, and he'd say, well, let's check upstairs, and we'd know that we were boned right from the start. He'd make a big speech on his way up the stairs about trusting us and appreciating our help, and then, oh, what's this? I left a mess here to test you, and it's not cleaned up? I thought you said you did your roundabout right. And then it was a half hour of red-faced screaming while we stood in place with a dead expression. One frown, one tear, or one word would get you fired. We'd all seen it. So, I was hot-faced when I found it. I didn't say anything, because the quiet outside had snuck in somehow and kept everything in the building whispery and weird. I felt that Cooper would even hear the slightest mutter, so I just cleaned it up without a word. He didn't say anything that day, though. Didn't ask about my roundabout. The weather was exactly the same the next day. A little hotter and quieter, if anything. Just really damn nervous weather. We took orders in hushed tones, and the customers spoke like they were in a church during a sermon. I found it again, in the same place. The fourth floor was smaller than the others. One big room, really, which topped the mansion, and it was usually only available for reserved events. A few too small windows showed out onto dark gray skies, making me feel uncomfortably visible to the unhappy air out there, but the big room was otherwise usually pretty nice. 
There was nothing up there but brick walls, hardwood floors, a small bar in one corner, and a whole lot of table and chairs. The chairs were all upside down on the tables, like they were supposed to be, but somebody had built little houses out of the sugar packets in the middle of all that. I didn't know how the hell he'd done it the first time, and I sure didn't have any idea the second. To even get to the sugar packets, I had to carefully pull down a bunch of chairs at each table, and putting the chairs back on would surely have knocked down the little structures. It was impressive as it was strange, and the whole silent time I was fixing it, I felt like he was looking over my shoulder from somewhere. But there was only a narrow, gray-skied window behind me. Just as I was done, something creaked somewhere, and I hurried out of there. The weird thing was, Cooper didn't say anything about my roundabout that day either. My next shift, it was still quiet and dark out and painfully hot. That time, he finally questioned my rounds, and I told him I'd found his little trick a third time and decided not to fix it. Not in so many words, of course. He said he didn't know what I was talking about, so I took him up to the fourth floor. I'd seen the little sugar packet buildings not two hours before, but now the big room was totally different. Chairs had been stacked into big, regular pillars in the middle of the room, and the tables were all on their sides in hexagon shapes. Cooper was pissed, and he told me to clean it up or I wouldn't get paid for that day. I didn't know if that was legal, but I had no choice, really. Confused and angry, I spent an hour setting tables back and upending chairs right. Who had even been up there? I'd just been in there for two or three hours before, and I hadn't seen anyone have enough time to do all that. Just as I put the last chair on one of the tables and wiped sweat away from my forehead. I felt like someone was watching me again. This time, I stared at the dark skies out one of the narrow windows with the feeling that I would see somebody out there in the shifting clouds, somebody who was watching me from really far away. The longer I stared, the more creeping little needles climbed up my spine and I eventually had to break and run downstairs. When the fourth floor tables and chairs were rearranged again the next day, Cooper called me at home to bitch me out. All I could do was remind him that he'd seen me fix them and leave, and I hadn't been back since. That shifted his anger towards someone else, a prankster that he swore he was going to catch. He only got angrier as it continued to happen every day for the next week. The patterns became more complex, and even the bottles from the corner bar were starting to get mixed in. At some point, we went up there in the morning to find a single stack of beer bottles from the floor to the ceiling, one bottle on top of another, perfectly cap to bottom from hardwood to paint. I touched it, and they all fell and smashed everywhere. Cooper docked my pay double for each one. For once, I shouted back at him, and he got really red-faced and talked low. He said that, sure, he'd give me that money if I sat outside the room with him the entire night to catch the prankster. Whatever. I agreed. I was invested, too. I couldn't figure out how the hell they were doing it. It was the hottest night that month. It had rained once in weeks, giving the air the consistency of sandpaper. I was mad, though, and I had a mission. 
I set two chairs in a tiny room near the base of the stairs on the fourth floor. The idea was that we'd wait for a creaking on the steps, then rush outside to catch the guy. It made sense. The steps were the only way up. So, after finishing up all my closing tasks at around 4 in the morning, I turned off all the lights like usual and headed out the back, but then slipped around through the dark and let myself and Cooper in through one of the many side doors. We crept up to the second floor, down a couple of hallways, took a right, and then used the old service ladder to get up to the third. Finally, we snuck into our little room near the base of the steps to the fourth floor and holed up. Cooper had brought a six-pack of bottles, but he didn't share. He simply sat in the dark, drinking and fuming. Even though I couldn't see him, I knew how red-faced he must have been. It was how he always got, and I imagined he might beat this poor trickster kid to death if we actually caught him. He was into a second beer when the night sounds of the Maisie Mansion bar began settling in. A creak echoed from somewhere far away, and we both stiffened in our seats a little. But no, it was nothing. A fan kicked on somewhere for a minute. What fan? What did it do? I'd never heard it before. It cycled off before I could really pinpoint it with my ears. Like we'd been hearing all month, thunder rumbled outside. The shift in pressure that came with it creaked and swayed in the building in a way that I would never have felt during the day. It was only now that I could feel it, and with no other sense or noise or sight to get in the way. The rolling thunder faded, and a floorboard squeaked. Cooper sat up tall in the dark, and I heard the slight clink of his beer being put down. Taking the hint, I stood up with him, going slow to avoid making noise. We both waded through another deep roll of trembling thunder, ears straining for any hint that someone was outside in the third floor hallway. I focused my hearing out there, going deeper and deeper into the silence. Every moment, the feeling that I was about to hear something horrible grew stronger until an incredible ruckus erupted above us, and we heard wood slamming and wood and table sliding. It sounded like an explosion or like a trained troop of soldiers had suddenly all taken action at once. Together, Cooper and I burst out of our hiding spot and ran up. He furiously kicked open the door. All of the tables, chairs, and beer and liquor bottles had been arranged in scattered geometric patterns. There was no motion in the room. It had all been done almost instantly. This wasn't the part that shocked us. It was the fact that we could see it. The narrow windows still showed out onto stormy gray skies. It was five in the morning and still pitch blackout, but the windows were showing the same gray day storms I'd seen all month long. That, and a light blue glow, the kind moss might give off in a cave, was just finishing fading as we scanned the room. As the blue glow faded, so did the light from the windows, and darkness fell over us. Cooper swore, more fearful than angry now, and we both hustled downstairs and out the building. Once we were in the parking lot, he swore a dozen 
more times and held his hand to his forehead while he tried to think of what to do. Haunted, he said. Should've known, he said. Shit, he said. He walked around breathing hard and cussing and throwing out ideas. He could sell the place, but then he'd get sued if they found out he'd known about the haunting. He could try to get a priest or something, but he didn't want the news to get out and scare customers away. Finally, he turned to me and said he'd had it. Instead of coming into work, I would go to the library and research the place's past or something, do like an investigation, like in the movies. I was not having it. He said he'd dock my pay again. I threatened to quit rather than deal with a goddamn ghost. He stood a little taller, and then he said he'd sue me for stealing things if I didn't do it. I hadn't stolen anything. But he and I both knew that didn't matter. So, pissed as hell, I went to the library the next day instead of the bar. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew in movies they always went and looked at old newspaper articles, so I did that. The place had a terrible history, but wasn't that going to be the case for a building over a hundred years old? Someone had gotten shot there during Prohibition, a guy had died there of a heart attack in the 30s, someone else had fallen off the little roof area in the 40s before they'd had the fences up there, and there were a lot of cases of workers going missing after complaining about working conditions and managerial theft. The last one concerned me. I'd always put up with Cooper's crap, but others hadn't. His family had owned the place since the beginning, and I'd heard stories of his grandfather's rather harsh take on his servants. His dad, too, had been a hard-ass. I guess Cooper was just part of the family line of assholes who thought they owned you because you worked for them. What was I doing? Running around like his personal assistant for Jackall? He didn't even pay me. The more I made in tips, the less the establishment had to pay me in wages by law. For the last two years, while we had a complete turnover in staff every three months, I'd stuck around. For that, I'd gotten a consistent paycheck of zero dollars twice a month. And if the orders got messed up, if customers changed their minds, or if I got something wrong, it came out of my pay. I was basically paying this bastard to work at his bar. Meanwhile, he partied it up every night, acting like the world's biggest hero. The more I thought about it, the angrier I got, and not just for me. A century of people like me had made the Cooper family rich. It was no wonder his damn place was haunted. Somebody up there was clamoring for attention. Even better, Cooper kept on secret figuring out the ghost duty for the next few weeks. As the heat and quiet deepened into the flapjacks face-down side of hell itself, everyone else sweated and cooked in their seats, but I kept inside and studied the fourth floor. The pattern began to make sense. There was a timing to it and a strong connection to the weather. The effect, too, was getting more elaborate. It was as if the murmur that had begun with sugar packets had now turned into shouting with splintered wood. The last day, the tables themselves had been disassembled and carved into something new. Shapes that vaguely resembled bones with intricate random patterns carved upon them. I picked up one of the five-foot-long carvings and stared at it for a good hour, trying to figure out what these tormented spirits were asking for. The 
walls were wet, and I realized that the liquid from inside the still-sealed liquor bottles had been splattered into spirals, circles, and lines. Annoyed at what would end up being yet another dock in my pay, I moved the remaining tables, chairs, and bottles out of the room and then spent two hours scrubbing the walls dry. At last day, the weather had become oppressive to the point of torture. The air was thick and hard to breathe, and the sky was pitch black at noon. The thick thunderclouds that had been gathering for the entire summer sat overhead, glaring down angrily. People were scared, but in a muted kind of way they couldn't share. Attendance was up, but only so customers could drink themselves into oblivion. And then the dishwashing machine broke. Cooper came in and announced the staff would all be staying late to wash dishes by hand. Unpaid, of course. I heard this, and I pulled him aside. See, I didn't really think anything bad would happen, but I did want to scare some human decency into him. I knew the higher-up room would be doing its thing in about two minutes, so I told him I'd solve the problems. In fact, and this bit of genius I made up on the spot, something else weird had started happening. The wooden tables and chairs, instead of being rearranged, had started turning gold. His eyes lit up something devilish, but he slapped me on the back and told me he'd give me a ten-cent raise if it were true. For my hard work that summer, he said, and because, goddammit, he just liked me as a person. As long as I wasn't kidding him about this gold thing, of course. Thinking him profusely, I walked him on up, smiled at him at the top of the fourth floor stairs, and then let him go first. I closed the door behind him and hurried down to the kitchen to wait among my co-workers. It didn't take long. Cooper's blood-curdling scream echoed out through his mazy mansion bar loud enough to be heard by customers and staff alike. None of us moved. At that moment, the two-month-long build-up finally broke. A tremendous blast of thunder shook the building and rain started blasting down with a torrential force outside. A long-time regular customer stood up, his eyes concerned, and one of our bartenders finally started moving. We followed our impromptu leader up the first flight of stairs, still hearing Cooper scream sporadically throughout the rain and thunder. Silence fell halfway up the second flight, and we crept along the dim third floor with a sense of dread. I was worried too, because I only meant to scare him, and those screams have been far deeper than just fear. We stepped up at the last set of stairs, one creaking board at a time, and all hesitated outside the door. No sound came from inside, at least none that we could hear over the gusting rain. Thunder shook the building again, scaring us forward. Our bartender leader took the handle, turned it, and swung it open as we all stared into a room lit by gray skies that floated gloomily past narrow windows. There was no sign of the storm through that glass, and the usual eerie blue glow was already fading. But we got a good look. I should have expected it, really. I'd taken out all the carved wood and remaining chairs and tables. I'd even removed the bottles and liquor from the bar. The pattern was quite beautiful, in a way. It was the most complex yet, and it spanned the room in a dazzling display of hanging, dripping, and stacked geometry. 
The carven shapes had become extremely intricate and the splatters on the wall had taken on a new level of artistry. The materials were the only reason anyone started screaming. Since I had removed everything else, the only thing left in room to be rearranged by the phenomenon had been Cooper himself. The Stranger in the Background We all have our pet peeves. These little things that get under our skin and bring an irrational sort of irritation. They may seem perfectly common occurrences to one person or another, and we can't describe exactly why these things happening cause such annoyance. For the onlooker, it can just be an average facet of human nature, or a trivial occurrence at best. For me, one very normal act that almost instantly causes me to tense up is when someone, innocently enough, thrusts their phone in my face. It feels almost suffocating, being frozen in place while I'm forced to watch a video or a humorous image where they think it's so important that I stop whatever I may be doing to stare at their device. I know this is nothing out of the ordinary, and I'm sure I put others in similarly awkward situations. The thing is, I was recently forced to watch something that has brought me far more suffering than the claustrophobic discomfort I would normally endure. More often than not, when I have a phone rammed in front of my face, I just zone out and take the time to daydream a bit. Sure, I'll give the token laugh when the wielder of the device chuckles and gives me an anticipation of shared levity, but it's all a show. Believe me, I'm not actively trying to be rude or anything. It's just a charade that I put on to satisfy my attacker's harmless intent. It's especially frustrating if I'm already in the process of enjoying my chosen entertainment on my own phone. It's like, hey, I see you're doing your own thing, but wouldn't you much rather watch this shit? I'm sure that I likely sound like a supercilious prude or something of the like. Perhaps you would feel the need to show others this text on your screen, to share the opinion of my narcissistic foolishness, but I can guarantee you, they likely won't be into it as you are. I may be getting carried away with trying to describe my annoyance with this newfound habit that many have grown over the last decade. Who knows? I could be the only one who feels this way. It's not one of those things you can really ask your friends about without setting the stage for a degree of defensiveness, especially if you're asking the very people who put you in that position. Either way, my apologies for my abundant rant. My awkward bitching and moaning is not what this is about. It started about a month or so ago. One of my associates at work was on his daily tour of showing his endless collection of epic fail videos to everyone he came across. He's an incredibly friendly guy named Jamie, who probably wouldn't hurt a fly if it landed on his glasses and did the Macarena in front of whatever eye it landed over. He's sort of the person that nobody wants to be rude or mean to, just because he truly is a genuinely decent individual. So, he finally circled my way with intent etched into his face. I had already rolled my eyes in inner protest as soon as he started on his almost daily walkthrough. Though I secretly wish they had some work that immediately required my attention, nobody in the room was particularly busy that day. So, the chuckling Jamie thrust his device in front of my eyes, barely squealing out the words, You gotta see this, in between his giggles. His enthusiastic body was practically wrapped around me, and I barely had any room to move. 
I just settled myself into a vague attempt to daydream for the next four minutes and 30 seconds worth of recommended streaming shenanigans. Somewhere in between my planning out what I needed to pick up at the grocery store and the boy straddling the railing of the public staircase after falling off a skateboard, I started to notice an unusual recurrence among the anthologized clips. You're familiar with these kinds of videos, right? Several minutes of different scenes of idiots falling off bikes or dancing on tables that break beneath them. There's usually that token girl who's attempting to pole dance in the living room and predictably tips the pole over and crashes to the floor. You may even get the kid tossing the baseball into the dear old dad's cojones. There really never is an abundance of diversity in them, but I can't deny that they can be amusing at times. Even though a few of these clips took place indoors, the majority of them were outside. Some in fields, others in backyards. The kid who slid his boys down the railing appeared to be in the city streets. I began to notice that in every clip, the same man stood in the background. He seemed quite out of place in his black pinstriped suit that was maybe three or four sizes too small for him. He also wore a wide-brimmed top hat, and his face was tilted down so I could not see any of his features, and he just stood there in the background with both hands holding onto the cane he propped himself upon. He was no taller or shorter than anyone else. His torso seemed short and stumpy compared to the length of his limbs. His hands appeared thin and bony, but that could have been an illusion caused by the sleeves that stopped short about halfway down his slender forearms. It seemed as though nobody else paid any attention to the man in the shrunken suit. Perhaps they were merely distracted by the events taking place before them. I asked Jamie if he could send me a link to the video, which caused his eyes to light up. I briefly thought that it may have been a grave mistake in the request, as he would surely take this as evidence that I looked forward to viewing many more videos of his choosing. Still, I felt the need to watch this series of clips again, paying more attention from the beginning. It would be later that night before I got a chance to review the link as my supervisor demanded we stash our devices and get back to work. He was a frantic and worrisome man. He'd rarely leave his office, but on the occasion he allowed himself to slip through its door, it was generally to vocalize disappointment in his worthless staff. We were used to his rants and would only greet his words with minor acknowledgments. I'd almost forgotten about the video length by the time I arrived back home that evening, and I settled in to watch the streaming show I'd been binging the last few days. It wasn't until I mindlessly checked my phone for activity that I noticed the icon indicating that I had an unread messages that it came back to me. I tapped my thumb on the link and viewed the video in full for the first time. As I had suspected, the unusually dressed man was in every clip. I even noticed him lurking outside the windows in the indoor scenes. I watched a handful of some of the other videos on the same channel, and no others had the special guest star. Well, none of the others I viewed, anyway. The channel had several hundred videos, and I wasn't about to sit through them all. The one Jamie had sent me was the most recent post from the channel, so perhaps it was just some sort of one-off gimmick with the intent of gathering new subscribers. When I arrived at my job the following day, Jamie caught up with me and asked me about the link he sent. Was it funny the second time? He asked enthusiastically. I've watched it like four times and it just keeps getting funnier, he continued. 
Not wanting to let him down or disappoint him in any way, I just replied, It's good stuff, with a smile. What's the deal with the guy in the suit, though? I asked nonchalantly. Jamie just looks confused. Guy in the short suit in the background and all the clips? I reaffirmed. Is he some sort of gimmick character in these things? I asked. My associate wore a confused expression while he shrugged before replying, Who? Assuming he had just only paid attention to the focal events of the scene, I pulled my phone out to show him who I was talking about. I, sorry, man, I don't, I don't see who you're talking about, Jamie said after I pointed my finger directly at the man who was clearly standing in the background. He's right there, I insisted, tapping my index finger on the screen of my device where the image of the man clearly stood. I was inadvertently pausing and unpausing the video with every jab of my forefinger, but it was frustrating me that he refused to acknowledge the guy in the suit. You're fucking with me, right? Jamie said with a smirk, nodding his head. Good one, he finished, giving me a slap across the shoulder before walking off in the direction of some of his closer group of work friends. Had he really not seen him? I wondered. Maybe he was just fucking with me. I was a little dumbfounded, but attempted to shrug it off as a poor attempted humor on my associate's behalf. The video was still playing on my phone while I stood there perplexed by the situation. I looked down at the screen and hovered my finger above it, fully intending to turn off the playback. That was until I noticed the position of the man whose gray socks were revealed by his short pinstripe pants had changed. He still stood alone and unmoving, but now held his cane in one hand and his head was slightly more raised. I could see the unsettlingly wide smile that reached across the lower half of his face. I still could not make out his eyes, but a long and pointed nose peeked out from beneath the brim of the top hat, almost overshadowing the eerie grin. The altered stance of a man combined with the fact that Jamie claimed to have not even seen him, began to make me feel quite uncomfortable and a little anxious. Over the remainder of my workday, I showed the anthology of fails to a handful of my other associates. A few attempted to brush it off, as Jamie had already shown them the same video the previous day. I still succeeded in convincing a couple of people to glance at the screen with me for a few moments, but they also claimed to be unable to see the man in the background. Either this was some sort of elaborate setup by Jamie, perhaps to pay me back for showing little interest in his video recommendations, or it was something far more strange. Jamie was never the sort to pull pranks, and many thought very highly of the guy. Honestly, I'd always considered him to be a genuinely good person myself. Still, it made no rational sense that I was the only one who could see this particular aspect of the video. Last time I watched the video, it had over 2 million views. So it's not like it was some sort of fly-under-the-radar clip show. It stands to reason that if I'd seen the man, someone else had to. I'd spend the next few days searching the internet for answers. There were plenty of stories of men in suits performing ominous acts, but mostly works of fiction and fan theories to published media. Found plenty of articles talking about the men in black who withheld knowledge of otherworldly beings from the public, and I'm sure we've all seen the stories of the tall, pale, and faceless man in the black suit. My search 
was leading absolutely nowhere, and I had become steadily more aggravated by the situation. My last-ditch effort was to attempt to contact the people who ran the channel the video was posted on. It took some time delving to find a way to get in touch with them, but I managed to find their Facebook page, finally. I wasn't entirely sure how to approach the subject without sounding like somewhat of a madman, so I typed out and deleted the message several times before feeling comfortable enough to send it. I stared at the words on my computer screen for quite some time before eventually tapping the send icon, but this is what my message read. Hi, I've been watching your channel for a while and just wanted to touch base with you guys about something. I was wondering who the man in the short black suit is. He appears in the background of every clip of your most recent video and he seemed somewhat out of place. I was curious if he was someone who works with you guys or if all the clips have taken place in the same area. I apologize if this is crossing any lines or anything. I'm a student at a film school and I thought that he could make an interesting character for a project I'm working on. Thank you in advance for any information you could share with me. Sure. The film student thing was a huge crock of shit, but I didn't want to come off like some sort of idiot fanboy full of conspiracy theories and the like. I wasn't sure if they'd reply, as channels like these are surely swamped with more messages than they can handle. Unfortunately, reaching out to them was the only idea I had left. I imagined that the best I could hope for was some sort of half-assed reply some weeks later. Just something to acknowledge my messages and thank me for being a subscriber or something similarly dismissive. I was incredibly surprised when my message received a reply within an hour of my sending it. First of all, thanks for being a subscriber. It means a lot to us when our fans reach out to us and we strive to make our appreciation known. That being said, whatever you do, do not keep watching the video. We've made several attempts to pull it from our channel, but it appears to contain some sort of virus that will not allow us to do so. The individual you referred to was not hired by us in any way, nor was he present at any of the events shown in the clips. I sincerely apologize that you're one of the few who are able to see him, but I highly recommend that you pursue this no further. Though we appreciate your support and value our subscribers, it is heavily recommended that you do not watch this video again. I can't say this really helped my confusion by all of this in the slightest, but it did give me something. I was not the only person who could see the man in the shrunken suit. The warning that I was given not to watch the recording again only served to make me even more curious. I'm sure they had a good reason to recommend against it, but it's just a video. Can't imagine another viewing could lead to anything substantially bad. After all, my curiosity had taken me this far. I couldn't just walk away from it now that I had affirmation that what I saw was real. Perhaps I'll watch it one more time. He actually moved this time. He wasn't just standing in the background anymore, but began progressively moving toward the foreground. He slowly approached the boy who straddled the railing. He began to raise the window of the room the failed pole dancer crashed to the floor in. He even trugged across the mud in the direction of the guy who flipped his dirt bike. Every clip showed the man steadily walking closer to the central character in a short scene. 
He would not reach the victim of the failure by the time each clip closed and another began, but I couldn't help but wonder what would happen when he did. Should I watch it again? I wondered. Not today. Not yet. I tried to reply to the Facebook message to inquire as to why I should not rewatch the footage. I would not hear back from them this time, but I think I expected that. To be honest, the way the man in the small suit moved made me feel quite uncomfortable. His movements didn't flow the same way the rest of the footage did. There was a jerkiness to his actions, almost similar to the way people moved in the old silent movies. There was a strange sort of graininess and an unusual texture to his appearance. Something I'd not noticed before. It could be that he was somewhat poorly superimposed into the clips. Perhaps his appearance was similar in nature to those images that could test levels of colorblindness where only certain people could see the number hidden in the blots. My theorizing settled my curiosity enough, for the time being, so I try not to think about this bizarre subject matter anymore. Having pushed the images far into the back room of the storage facility in my head, I decided it would be best to drop the matter altogether. I had already spent way too much valuable time dwelling on this unusual subject, and I planned to just get back to some semblance of normality. That's what I told myself, anyway. Over the following days, no matter how much I worked to keep myself distracted, my mind kept wandering back to the man in the video. I would absentmindedly pick up my phone from time to time and find myself wanting to click on the link that my associate had sent me. Finally, I made the decision to remove temptation and just delete the message. Similarly to what was inferred in the Facebook message from the channel that posted the blasted video, I'm unable to delete the damn thing. It would spin with a little in-progress icon for a time, but ultimately it would not remove it from my device. This served to alarm me even more, as I'd already spent way more time than I should have dwelling on this ridiculous thing. I made one final attempt to delete the chat box entirely, and the video just started playing, seemingly of its own volition. I didn't even tap the link, only the message box itself. They should not have caused the damn thing to activate. I feebly attempted to close the video, and when that didn't work, I attempted to shut down my phone to no avail. Finally, I said to hell with it as frustration began to flood my face with warm blood. I vigorously slid off the back panel and removed my battery before slamming the device face down on the table. I let out a grateful sigh in recognition of my assured success. I had no reason to believe this would fail, to stick a fork in the unyielding determination of that seemingly cursed video. That was until I heard the sound of the ambient background music from the clip which had still found a way to begin its playback. I flipped the phone back over to face me, and sure enough, the kid was sliding his junk down the railing again before my eyes. I was stunned. How the hell could this be happening when the battery was lying on the desk a good foot away from the phone? I watched in horror as the man in the tight-fitting and wrinkled suit took exaggerated steps and long, jerky strides toward the kid on the railing. 
He looked like a cartoon character, comically creeping up on his prey as though a freshly lit stick of dynamite would soon be whipped out from his back pocket. The boy stayed perched on the railing as everything but the approaching man appeared to have become frozen. The timestamp on the clip had even stopped at 43 seconds. I couldn't look away. The man in the small pinstriped suit finally reached the boy on the public stairway banister. He reached his hands out and wrapped his long and bony fingers around the kid's legs before turning his head up to look at the camera. Right into my eyes, or so it felt. His smile widened way more than a human face was capable of, and his abnormally large round eyes lit up with a glow. He pulled down on the legs of the straddling teenager, and the body split in two around the railing. Thick, dark blood sprayed across the screen while he separated one side of the body from the other. The background music gave way to the slushing and splatting sounds of the kids' insides cascading onto the concrete floor. The screen went black and the phone lay lifeless on the table once more. My hands were shaking violently and I let out a heavy and trembling breath. I didn't even realize that I had been holding my airflow this whole time and I felt lightheaded and dizzy. I felt my throat clench around the lumps that threatened to push upward and out of my mouth. What the fuck? I said out loud, my whole body quaking beneath my skin. I was afraid to even touch my phone. I was terrified that if my hand is so much lightly brushed up against it, the next clip would begin to play out before me. I dreaded to think what havoc the man in the pinstriped suit would do next. I stood up to prop myself on legs that felt like gelatin wrapped around a weakened skeletal structure composed of little more than toothpicks. I backed up from the dark screen that stared blankly at the ceiling as though it would leap toward me with malicious intent at any moment. I ran out of my apartment and headed straight for the stairs. I ran out of my apartment and headed straight for the stairs. The idea of standing still in the elevator with nothing to occupy my erratic thoughts but the grotesque display of maniacal violence and gore I'd witnessed was the last thing I needed right now. I sped toward the door while my mind raced significantly faster than my still gelatinous legs. My spinning head was mostly checked out and otherwise occupied during my exit, and I clumsily tripped over the threshold of the door to my apartment building. I planted my face on the crowded concrete pavement that ran alongside the complex to the great delight of many onlookers. Though I was momentarily dazed and felt a rush of fresh blood trickle down from my brow, I got to my feet and made a humble bow to the crowd. Perhaps I could save the tiniest sliver of my dignity. Sometime later that day, I arrived back at my home after visiting a local department store to purchase a brand new and never-before-touched cell phone. It may seem a little over at the top, but I grabbed my old device with some of the grilling tongs while keeping it extended out in front of me. I slowly walked in the direction of my small fireplace and released my grip on the item. I can now consider it to be cursed and filled with sinister intent. I squirted lyre fluid across the now-cracked screen and dropped a lit match upon it. It went up in a blaze and became a melted lump of plastic and electronic shrapnel within minutes. I 
let out a long sigh and returned to the bag with my new device in it. Over the next few hours, I went through all the obligatory setup steps and updated my contacts, leaving Jamie's number off the list. Over the next few days, I still found myself somewhat nervous when I allowed my eyes to glance at my new device. After another week had passed, and my life had returned to its normal and uneventful routines. No more dwelling on strange videos or the mysterious guest stars that may or may not contain. I did find my entire body tense up when Jamie made his occasional tour of the office with his phone outstretched with pride. Before I could give him the opportunity to jam his scream in front of my face, I fled for the safety of the bathroom. Better to avoid any more uncomfortable viewings if I could. Luckily, my associate had finished his sweep by the time I returned to my desk, and the day played out like many others before it. I only wished that I had not turned on the TV when I got home that evening. Drake Fillmore, a popular skateboarder whose videos have inspired many across streaming platforms, died late last night, the newscaster read aloud from the teleprompter. The details of the incident that took his life are being withheld from the public at this time. Witnesses have described the freak accident as horrific, and some were reported to have fainted at the site. Though I already had little doubt as to the identity of the unfortunate victim, I still became dizzy and lightheaded when the image of the boy who had straddled the railing came on screen. He was older than he was in the anthology of fails I had viewed, but it was definitely the same person. I sat there slack-jawed in front of the television as they progressed to the next topic of the day. Could this bizarre video montage of slips and falls really have led to the real-life death of an innocent kid? My thoughts were interrupted by the buzzing vibration of my newly acquired phone. I idle-mindedly reached for the device while still staring at the TV screen. The newscaster droned on with whatever new information she was prompted to relay, but I still felt haunted by the events that played out on the previous segment. I clicked the button on the side of my phone and swiped my thumb across the screen to allow my home screen to be displayed. Rather than break my gaze away from the flat screen in front of me, I raised the device in my hand to meet my eyes. I tapped the thumb on my icon that indicated a new message and felt my back stiffen when I looked upon the text that revealed an unknown number had attached to the video link. Without even clicking on the link, I closed the application and set my phone back down onto my old and weathered wooden coffee table. I knew what would happen if I made any attempt to delete the message. I refused to allow the opportunity to replay the video. I never wanted to watch it again. I dreaded to think what the man in the shrunken pinstriped suit had planned for the unsuccessful pole dancer. She was the feature in the clip that followed the boy that straddled the railing. I stared at the device laying face down on the table for some time. It wasn't until I heard the sounds of the video taking it upon itself to start its playback without my consent that I whipped the phone back from the table and slung it into the fireplace. I heard the screen crack and split only inches from where the dried glob of melted plastic of its predecessor still lay. I repeated the procedure I'd performed on my old phone and listened as the small speaker strained and popped before giving way to nothing more than the crackling sounds of fire. 
It had been many years since, and I lived without the company of my glossy black phone. I'd find myself reaching into my pocket from time to time, only to find loose lint or an occasional spare change waiting. It felt similar to how I imagined phantom limb syndrome to be when my absent mind would command my hand to thumb through random websites that were once no further away than the tip of my finger. This was just the muscle memory that my subconscious still felt the need to pursue. I'd never taken the time to realize how often I would reach for the blasted thing. How many hours of otherwise boring time that I could easily be filled with my access to the World Wide Web. It took some adjusting to get used to a life without the internet at my fingertips, but it was far better than the alternative. I'd still flee the room when Jamie would approach with his enthusiastic chuckles, holding his phone out as if it were the Olympic torch. It had been several weeks since I abandoned life with a smartphone, and I refused to watch the news anymore out of fear of seeing familiar face, having faced a brutal and painful death. I had little doubt that whether I watched the videos anymore or not, the strange man in the top hat still found his victims. I still felt the weight of this, but most days I could just add it to the long list of other atrocities of this world I would not have to bear witness to. My life got back into a routine, and after some time, I no longer reached for the phantom device that used to lay snugly in my pocket. My brief moment of peace would be short-lived, unfortunately, when I was so involved in my work one day, I did not notice my approaching colleague. It was only days ago, after I had already begun to write down the events that led me here, when I found Jamie's phone thrust into my face for the last time. You're famous, he exclaimed, laughing out loud while brandishing his device proudly in front of my eyes. The video that played out before me had already progressed to its midway point before he held it out before me. I watched with my mouth agape as I saw familiar events play out from a far removed perspective than I remember them to have occurred. The view from the side of the crowded sidewalk showed me the footage of myself clumsily exiting my apartment building. My feet met the threshold of the door and I toppled to the ground while the audience roared with laughter. As I got to my feet to take my bow, I noticed an arm propped up on the ledge of the open window of a taxi that was parked on the side of the road. The long, thin wrist that led to the bony and pale fingers was protruding from a short, black, pinstriped sleeve. <laughs> I'm sure I sound like a superfluous prude. Super, super, what the fuck is that word, huh? Who? When? Where? Why? How? Hold on. Supercilious. Supercilious? What the fuck is that? 